0: Hello and welcome back or welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mullins. Today, I interview Jeff Moore. During his 23-year career at the University of Texas, Jeff's Longhorn women's tennis team won two NCAA championships, appeared in two NCAA finals, and won 18 conference titles. He's now a coach of coaches and leaders, a successful entrepreneur and author. Jeff recently released a book titled, Strive Together, Achieve Beyond Expectations in a Results-Orientated World. His ideas in this book lead much of our conversation today. I hope you'll enjoy. It. Hello, Jeff Moore. Welcome to the ITA College Coaches Tennis Podcast.
1: Thank you, Dave glad to be here
0: yeah so uh we've we've lots to dig into today and and uh I, in in my intro i'm going to kind of talk about your um you know your your career as, as a college tennis coach and provide more detail to our listeners i'm sure most of them know know who you are and know your background but I, I will definitely go into that i i don't want to waste this precious time with you um going into all your achievements as a college coach i really want to dig into what you're doing now and uh your 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 work maybe since uh, college coaching i mean as we go through this interview we'll we'll intersect on on a number of different areas but you've um you've written a new book and uh released i hope it's going well i i thoroughly enjoyed uh reading it i got a lot out of it it's called strive together and and um i i was hoping we could start by you letting us know what what strivership is
1: Uh, strivership is an ethic. It's not a mindset. It's not a philosophy. It's not a pedagogy. It's an ethic of continuous improvement. And it's based on the origin of the word compete from Latin in the 1600s. The origin of the word compete is to strive together. The modern definition of compete is to outdo. It's zero sum. So the definition, the real essence of competition of competing has become extremely distorted from its essence to striving together means that if you and I compete, Dave, whether it's on a tennis court, uh, we could be around a boardroom, um, debating a project, Mm -hmm. you win the project or I win the project, or it's, it's merely a debate, but when two people compete, there's tension because without tension there's no growth. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the end, true competitors view themselves as having, strive together, they and making each other better. Mm. That's the distinction. And that's what we've lost. The world has become stuck between um, a word called collaborative, mm-hmm. which we never used to use much. I can't imagine going to my practice and saying, hey, guys, let's be collaborative today. <laughs> and then the other word is cutthroat, which is really the definition, the way that people define compete today is really the definition mm. of cutthroat. To outdo, to destroy, or be destroyed. We're sort of stuck between those two concepts, um, mm-hmm. and the courage to compete in in, in all walks of life has mm-hmm. dissipated.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's definitely something that's that I couldn't agree with you more, and it's it's something that's interesting that we've we've kind of lost that in in the sports world, especially because I, I know and you yeah. know as. as i got better from from competing from from going out whether that's a teammate or or an opponent and trying to keep up with them trying to figure out how i was going to beat them and that that's really where i got better it, you know obviously had to do the repetitions on the court but ultimately where i saw the biggest growth was was when i was competing so can you can you talk about the terms or or maybe define the terms driver and arriver so that as that will inform the rest of our conversation
1: I will. I will. But before that, I want to make clear that competing in sports, cause I know this gets misunderstood a lot is not let's go play a set and see who wins as much as it is. Let's go play a set and uh, we're going to try to make each other uncomfortable mm. with purpose-driven execution. So it's, I'm going to make you solve problems, Dave, with where I hit my serve. Mm-hmm. I'm going to frustrate you. I'm going to make you uncomfortable by executing at a high level if if you if you make me go into neutral, I'm going to deliver body punches. I'm going to push you back in the court until I get a ball that I can take charge of the point. Then I'm going to move you. Again, the, so competing to me is about problem solving and about confronting problems that your opponent gives you. Mm-hmm. It, at its essence, and this is what all great coaches focus on, uh, and it's why all great coaches win consistently is because their focus is not on winning; it's on competing. So a striver is a person, um, I had to pick two words that describe what I was trying to say. Hmm. And the striver is a person who is driven by a purpose that transcends winning, sort of segueing from what I just said. A striver is driven um, to make him or herself better, the team better, and the organization better. Um, They're always reaching beyond their grasp uh, it's They are not trying to, they do not compare, they compete. And a rival is someone who is only into comparisons. Mm-hmm. And of course we all compare, but today comparing is the rule. Um, you see it in politics, you see it in business, you see it in schools, you see it in sports it's absolutely rampant. We don't make a move unless we're in, it's, it's ensured that we're going to compare favorably. Mm. Um, Mm. and, and that's, we don't take chances. Mm. So what a striver will do is strivers will put themselves out there. They'll take chances. Um, if they think that that they need to engage in something that will make them better, but might make them vulnerable initially or make them look like a fool You know, in tennis, it could be as simple as changing a stroke or a tactic Mm -hmm. like Federer completely changing his game in his mid thirties or Nadal when he was approaching number one, completely changing his game when he was much younger. That's very, very risky. They're strivers because they're always looking at ways to get better, Mm -hmm. even if it takes them out of their comfort zone. They will take that chance. And we've lost that zest. We've lost that desire to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you for um, again yeah. in all in all institutions. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks for defining that. So, so is there maybe a dark side to being a, a striver if everybody's, you know, trying to operate at this level? Is there, you know, is there a downside to being a striver, or should everybody be striving to be a striver? In 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 your view?
1: Well, I think that the problem is that we we didn't use the the, the, the a striver used to be someone you know, when I was young, certainly, and it wasn't that long ago that a striver was someone who was always trying to get ahead of the game, your CEO, your world leader. Mm -hmm. I want to be president of the company, but now it's required to stay in the game because Mm -hmm. we're living in a world where we're having to solve problems every day that don't have answers. We before we always, it might be difficult, but there would always be answers out there to problems. Mm -hmm. So, um, Striving only becomes dicey when, um, it's over the top, but really it's probably, um, it's, it's difficult to answer that question in a way, because my assessment and one piece that I forgot is you don't just strive in relationship to self. You also strive together in relationship to team, Mm -hmm. your teammates in your relationship to boss, coach, teacher, boss, you're superior. And if you have direct reports, which in the case of a coach would be athletes in your relationship with them. So it's driving in all of those relationships. So for instance, I'm not a big fan of the current NBA. If you pick a lot of superstars in the NBA and you ask the question, do they compete in relationship to self? Do they take chances to get better? Absolutely. Do they compete in relationship to team? Well, do they push their teammates? Yes. Do they support their teammates? Maybe if they feel like it. Do they communicate with their teammates if they have a problem in the media? And the same goes for relationship to coach. So in my in my view, many of them, many, and this goes for many athletes today, are not competitors outside of relationship to self. That's a very important distinction. Mm. But to answer your question, that's how um, people can, that's where the dark side appears. Mm. is where you're striving together in relationship to self but not in relationship to team and coach
0: right. it's
1: over the top and that's where you can be over the top and that's where steve jobs had issues mm. early in his life uh and and led to him being kicked out of apple one of the reasons when he came back he realized that he needed to shore up that relationship to team and relationship to boss, which in
0: his case was the board. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? No, that, that makes perfect sense. And that's again, really helpful. And in
1: professional basketball players and tennis players are essentially entertainers. So they get away with it. It's an entertainment Mm -hmm. business. So teams can make lots of money and people will go watch as long as they entertain. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call them, in my view, competitors, I wouldn't want to put them in charge of solving serious
0: problems. Mm. No, it's, that's fascinating. And, and well, talking about the self and, and throughout your book, you talk, you kind of define great coaches as having a strong ego drive and also having high levels of empathy. So so on the surface, that seems almost contradictory. So so can you again define that further and tell us what you mean by great coaches having strong ego drive and empathy?
1: Well, it's actually great leaders, which would incu- include, mm-hmm. of course, great coaches. And, and I, d- I make a delineation between leaders and managers mm-hmm. um, because you're either one or the other. There, are not, there may or may not be styles of leadership, but people say to me, well, there's, there are directive leaders. No, that person is a manager because a manager has a strong ego, but it's all, but all information and all directions flow in one direction. And a man, a man, what a manager does is it does not have empathy because a manager will establish a goal and he will tell you exactly what that, what it's going to look like when that goal is reached. And he will micromanage you all the way to the goal a leader has both an ego, strong ego drive, a, st- a strong sense of the direction that the organization's gonna go. Um, she has a clear view of where she wants the team to go, but she's not exactly sure what it's gonna look like when um, the team arrives there. And she wants you, their direct, her direct reports, to lead her there. So that's where the empathy comes in, and it also comes in. and and to build the leverage to push the team um, to get these people to lead you there, um empathy is required because what's required is building a strong, trusting personal relationship with each direct report. And this is something people don't understand about, for instance, Belichick and Sabin. They may understand it about pop Popovich. I've studied these people. And this may seem completely contradictory, but Nick Saban has a personal relationship with everyone in that locker room. It's just that unlike most coaches, he doesn't broadcast it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't promote his culture. They will run. I know this for a fact. They will run through walls for him because he values them more as people than than as athletes and where where some people get thrown off is that he seems gruff and so does Belichick Mm -hmm. and, and so does pop. But in effect, a lot of times they're gruff with the, they're difficult with the media because they're keeping everything in house. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they, without, without that relationship, without that seeking to, to lead by being led, they would lose the locker room. As opposed, and this is as opposed to a lot of coaches who are managers where it's all about them and they're going to tell you exactly how you get, um, to the goal.
0: Mm.
1: So, so ego, strong ego, um, strong, a lot of empathy without strong ego means that you lose your way. Uh, strong ego without empathy, uh, means that you're a manager. You're basically Um, Not going to seriously, meaningfully involve other people
0: Mm. in the process. Yeah. So you say in your book as well that, you know, you're not trying to provide a, a leadership formula. There's a, a lot of books out there that try and give you, you know, X plus Y equals Z kind of thing. But you're you're, you're very clear on that, which which I liked and it was, it was refreshing to, to read that. But how do you believe college tennis coaches can be intentional about becoming a better leader rather than passively hoping that it happens with time? Well, I think, I think
1: what's happening is I guess um, some are passively hoping it happens, but I think the other thing that's happening that's misleading is we have more leadership books than ever before. We have thousands of leadership books mm-hmm. and we have no leaders. <laughs> it's almost inverse relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think what's, what people have said about my book is finally someone who speaks our language is writing a book like this. Cause if you look at the bio of many of the so-called leadership experts it'll say psychologist or author or professor so they're essentially observers of leaders and they do research which most often is very narrow in scope and um so so what i've done is provide instead of a how to the 5 this or the 9 that or the 3 this or mm-hmm. some formula leadership is an art so i provided a framework i've studied leaders i've studied great coaches and what they, what they do is they cultivate what I call a spirit of strivership. They cultivate this and they do this through the way. And you know, as a young coach, I don't know about you, Dave, but as a young coach, I talked too much. Coaches talk too much. The way that you set up practice, the way you set up problem solving scenarios that you put your athletes in can in itself cultivate competitiveness mm-hmm. if that makes sense okay. setting them up not just to do mindless endless repetitions or setting it up simply to see who wins but putting parameters and restrictions around the drill and i coached a lot of basketball the analogy there would be five on five you can't score until the ball re- enters and re-enters the post three times or the ball is reversed two times or whatever you put restrictions Mm -hmm. and that forces the athletes to problem solve. Mm -hmm. So setting up practice is one way to what I call cultivate and the other way. And it, it spins off of this. If I put you in a practice like that, Dave, you're going to be very frustrated because I'm putting parameters and restrictions on the drills Mm -hmm. where you have to solve a problem to win. And you're going to get extremely frustrated when you do that. I'm going to cultivate um, your willingness to continue trying to solve that problem, persevering through the process Mm. um, and continue to push your teammate and responding or the lack of your willingness to demonstrate that. Does that make sense with a question or an observation?
0: Sure,
1: Dave, can you push through this? What is the purpose of your serve, Dave? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I might walk away. I might not, we're not going to have some long coaches stop practice way too much and <laughs> talk way too much and it would be a comment just to keep you in awareness of what you're trying to do mm. does that make sense
0: yeah no it so it, um it does yeah so so as coaches are trying to uh, again ho- hopefully get better and you talk about leaders versus managers do you do you have any way of helping coaches uh, evaluate themselves as to are they you know leaning into being a manager too much or or maybe aren't even aware of it how, how can they develop an awareness as to to where they fall on that spectrum
1: well the first thing i have them do is take my assessment mm-hmm which assesses your willingness to strive together to compete in those four relationships I talked about in the fourth relationship is, is relationship to direct reports to which in this case is athletes mm-hmm. and it assesses your willingness to, um, inspire, meaning set stretch, stretch goals and convey to your athletes a sense mm-hmm. in my way through cultivating that they can stretch beyond what they think they can do. And this is what, I had the pleasure of working with athletes who responded to that. Um, they were thirsty to get better. They hadn't been recruited by the top schools. Believe me, they were talented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> they were plenty talented, but they just had an edge. And um, so I, I would put them in situations um, like that. And so so that's that's how it has to be set up. Mm-hmm. Um Okay. in that way. Whereas if I'm a manager as a coach, I'm going to set set out a way, I'm going to tell them what they do. I'm going to script practice. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to know exactly what they're going to do before practice, how much time it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll all be quite formulaic. So basically it's a robotic exercise.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's where cool. where the where yeah. the where the drills are are repetitive, mm-hmm. what we call blocked or serial, which means a set pattern that they practice over and over and over, which would work great, except that if you and I play a match, we can't make a deal to, to hit cross court down the line
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to hit a set yeah. pattern.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's great advice. So, uh, you know, I I, I love the you know learning more about you throughout throughout your book, your your childhood, learning about your father, um, you know, lots of stories about about your coaching career, and and you talked about how as you came to the end of your your college tennis coaching career, how players went from asking you how they can get better to. Why are you not more positive with me? And I and I think that's that trend has continued. I, I speak with a lot of coaches. It's similar to to, to my experience as well as, as a college coach. But I, you know, I, I I struggled with um you know what what is that balance you know and and. Um, you know, I lost some players because of it, they, they transferred, they went elsewhere because they were misinterpreting criticism for, for negativity and and saying, I'm not positive, positive enough. But I think coaches are trying to find this balance where they, they can push, they can criticize, but then they're not losing players completely. Like I believe those players would have been better off. Staying with me for a few more years and and I may be could have influenced and helped them you know in in deeper ways than than someone else might have been uh, because I was willing to be a little more critical on them but ha- how would you encourage coaches in this day and age to strike that balance, or is it just you know this player' is just you know this is who I am as a coach and and if this player can't buy in then then so be it.
1: Well, no, it's a good point. and And all the coaches listening to this will obviously agree that the athletes we're getting are used to being affirmed for every step they take. I mean, I, with the teams I work with, uh, soccer teams, basketball teams, every pass that's made teammates will shout, yell out good pass or good job. And my reply is that is your job. <laughs> you know, it's nothing spectacular. So there's this cacophony. There's a there's a, a toxic level of positivity in our society today. Mm -hmm. So before I, before I go on a tangent, how does that relate to tennis? What I do is provide a third way. So the the one way is to be negative, uh, my way or the highway, that's sort of old school. That's Bobby Knight. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we've done, we realize, and it's not just the Bobby Knight syndrome, what was worse was all were all the high school coaches and college coaches who tried to emulate him. It was survival of the fittest. The problem is we did a 360 instead of a 180, and now everybody's special. <laughs> so what I provided is a third way that I think it would have been better in the Bobby Knight days, and that is that if something bad happens to you on the tennis court, if you just play a horrendous point, or you get run all over, that you lose a long point, whatever. Um, Embrace it. Instead of saying to yourself, oh, it's okay, and being positive, instead of doing that, say to yourself, no, that sucks what just happened. Mm -hmm. I need to make a better decision next time and reset. The problem with being positive in that situation is positivity is linked to outcomes, Mm -hmm. not performance. And you have to stay on task. So that's the way I've helped a lot of athletes in different sports cope with this, whereas psychologists are trying to get them to think positive thoughts, and I'm trying to get them to think challenging thoughts. So to answer your question, I don't believe in positive, I never believed in negative, Mm -hmm. but I no no longer believe in positive per se because of today's connotation and the way it's taken, I believe in challenging people, which in itself is extremely positive. Mm -hmm. And the teams I've worked with, many of them that I have talked to, there will be athletes in the room who've never ever been asked to do more Mm -hmm. been challenged in this way. And they get excited. And there'll be others that are forever, at least while they're in college, they're going to remain arrivers. Mm -hmm. You know, the hope is when they get out into the real world, when the big game starts that they will respond. But so so I urge coaches to look for that core of athletes on their team that will respond to this approach. Does that make sense? And mm-hmm. it takes forever. I know some of the coaches I've worked with in volleyball, I've work with. i worked with Clemson Men's Soccer, they're currently number one in the nation. Mm-hmm. Rice University Volleyball, they're now uh, 17 in the nation. They beat Texas the number one team in the nation. Mm-hmm. And Alabama Men's Tennis, and all those coaches I've had to work with over time to understand this, not so they understand my method, but to provide them with a framework so they can become the best version of themselves. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it, that's, that's what I don't want them to think, oh, this is the Jeff Moore method. Mm-hmm. Um, because leadership is an art, not a science.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a challenging time for sure, and and this is what I see. Look, I've two young kids myself, and even when uh, I'm doing my best not to spoil them, life is still almost too easy. And and these upper yeah. middle class, you know, kids, they they have all the comforts in the world. They're never bored anymore because they have a supercomputer in in their pocket. Um, they're, they're never concerned where their next meal or, or, or a piece of clothing is coming from or anything like that. It's kind of that instant gratification. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel for coaches because there, there's so many societal issues that, that these kids are i guess are are dealing with and and the coaches are trying to help them with that so you know i used to think it was just the parents and the parents are look (laughs) a big a big part of it and and a huge influencer but then there's other junior coaches they're dealing with it's their peers it's the social media it's the 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 way life is set up now for for kids and and how i guess i'm not saying you, you can provide a formula here but how would you encourage college coaches to at least try and penetrate that that bubble and trying to get i mean i i was always battling to get my kids to be a little more counterculture to to not conform so much but then it was just so out of their their wheelhouse it was almost too far and where where maybe i'd lose them they go this guy's just weird <laughs> you know and it's well it's, well yeah.
1: yeah yeah well the first thing i would say is that i would repeat that and you know this um uh, no sports team in existence is, are you with no sports team in existence? Are you going to get a hundred percent buy-in mm-hmm. to a commitment to become the best you can be from every athlete? It's just on um, the two national championships I had, we had five or six out of eight, you know, five would be mm-hmm. uh, and today. So the key again is to, is to, is to establish standards for competing and put the athletes in position to select for or select out. And more direct to your answer, to your question is: what I what I've appealed to athletes to to do is to think about practice every day as a one time in their day when they're fully engaged. Mm-hmm. Because, and this is really true, the more prestigious the school is, supposedly prestigious. Academically, the more true this next statement is their day is a series of events that they check the boxes. Mm-hmm. I go to class, I take notes, I go to lab, I eat, it's all on a schedule. I go to the next thing. And then there's social media, so on and so forth. And so trying to convince them, this is the one time in your day when you can be fully engaged and when you can engage in something that unlike the academic side is going to pr- equip you with skills that will be game changers in your in the real world for you. I mean, school is not going to do that for you. School is going to give you a diploma, a credential, but it's a very linear existence. The real world doesn't give tests on information as schools do. Schools give tests on information that's detached and disassociated that you will forget research shows within three months. So it's an exercise in getting a credential. I'm not saying that you don't, you're never in a class that fascinates you, in which case you do learn and you do strive together in a sense, but overall that's the mindset. So make this, make these, make practice that one time where you engage Mm -hmm. and you compete, you actually compete and you actually allow yourself to be frustrated and try to frustrate others in the interest of pushing each other so that when you face the enemy, the the team that you hate, your arch rival. Oh, you, Dave, <laughs> you're ready. Uh, you're ready. Yeah. Um, and and again, the the bigger, the even bigger goal is that can actually prepare you for the realities of the workplace, which
0: mm-hmm. which academics does not do right. right beyond a credential currently, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So so coaches often struggle with their players' inability to handle ambiguity, but. Uh, You know, coaches are also a little bit guilty of of dealing with change themselves and and evolving and striving, like you said. So you're very clear again in your book that future leaders will not only be able to handle ambiguity, but actually thrive in it. So how would you encourage coaches to develop this ability first in themselves and and then in their players? Well, I think... um
1: the the way that um, I don't think I fully answered a prior question of yours. The first thing I do is have the coach or the leader, if it's a business leader, or the CEO, um, take my assessment to assist, to see where they are in terms of how they're striving together and how they're leading people and and how much they're willing to move out of their comfort zone. And um, in in the case of a tennis coach or any coach really, are you setting up practice? So that, so that you're preparing your players to compete or to play the sport. Mm -hmm. So the way most practices are set up, the two sports I coach, this is especially true, um, to a fault. The practices are set up to be, uh, formulaic again, scripted where the emphasis is putting on, put on working hard and showing energy, Mm -hmm. um, So, and working hard is incredibly overrated. Working hard is grinding for a test, grinding for grades, digging a ditch. It's very task oriented. It's in the weight room. It's not, Mm. you don't compete in the weight room. You try to lift as much weight as you can and run as fast as you can. And it's really important stuff, but it's not competing. Energy by itself is not competing. Mm. And we see way too much energy and wasted energy in practice every good shot that's hit deserves a scream. So every shot is amazing, which means that no shot is amazing. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So to put the emphasis again, again, um, and these kids have hit tennis balls since they were six. And, and so the repetitions are overdone, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of technique. So to, for coaches to get out of their comfort zone, again, by setting up more game situations, Um, or drills that have parameters on them so that, um, the, their athletes are not only uncomfortable physically, which is all that you are when all you do is drills and you're just running around doing something formulaic, but they're also exercising their minds, which means they're going to get frustrated, which means they're going to exercise their emotional, their emotions. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the way a real match is played, as you know, Mm -hmm because a real match is not collaborative or cooperative, it's competitive.
0: Right.
1: So are you going to be ready for that?
0: Yeah. So, okay. So it, it's really trying to encourage coaches to, like you said, get out of their comfort zone. They, they run a practice a certain way for X number of years. They've learned that from whether it's their coach or being an assistant coach. And it's, it's trying to get them out of their comfort zone to, uh, be less for formulaic and, and. Yes, let the practice evolve and, and find ways for, for their players to uh, compete and, and get out of, yeah, their, their kind of... And compete club. really yeah. and
1: evaluate them based on how they compete, mm-hmm. the way I define it, you know, win or lose the set. Yeah. For instance, some coaches now that I work with are doing drills where you can only win, you have to win one point outright. And while the other player can win as many, let's say it's a drop feed drill, you know, you just start somebody drop. And while the other player can win as many points as he wants any way that they come.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right now, if I have to win a one point out right against you, that means I've got to push you back because we're going to start in neutral. Mm-hmm. I have to get a ball that's say three-quarter court. Then I have to move your butt, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, then you hit it back even shorter and I either hit a winner or come to the net. Now I'm looking over the net and I have all this angle. It's going to make me construct the point. Right. So that's a quick example of what I'm talking about. The problem in tennis is tennis coaches are descended from people who taught lessons in clubs, mm-hmm. whereas coaches in other sports are des- descended from, say, Newt Rockney, people like that who were coaching basketball, baseball, and football in middle school mm-hmm. when they started out of college. They learned how to coach, and they learned how to pr- pr- prepare um, athletes to compete um. Uh, Two. Uh, we're just dis- we're we're um, descended from tennis pros that taught that teach players how to play
0: the mm-hmm. sport. Does that make sense? No, and how to hit shots. Yeah. No. Does that I, make sense? Yeah. I haven't heard uh, you know it put in that way before, but that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the questions I've asked a few other guests is is how you know how should young college coaches develop that that now we're seeing they come out of, of college, they're maybe going on to being a volunteer or, or assistant straight out of college and they bypass um any other form of coaching or experience. And and that's maybe just the way the industry's going and you have to get into it earlier and, and all the rest of it. But but how would you encourage coaches to especially young coaches to i guess spread their wings a little bit and and get some experiences in in other worlds and other industries so that they can become the best i guess head college coach that they can be
1: well i mean i um i guess go to other teams practices i mean there are some Mm. not all not not a lot but there are some basketball coaches who run incredible practices and soccer is one of the most fun sports to work with because it's the ultimate problem-solving sport. There's nobody on the sideline. You know this. Yeah. Holding up a placard with the next play. There's no timeouts. It's mm-hmm. com- constant problem-solving. But w- one thing that I would encourage coaches to do is um, when they talk to their current athletes or recruits, ask this question. How do you win points? Mm-hmm. I asked a, a men's player from an SEC school this. Uh, the first time I asked this was, was from Austin. He's playing for an SEC school. And I said, how do you win points? And he said, well, I'm an aggressive baseliner. I said, no, no, it's not. I don't know your style. How do you win points? Mm-hmm. He was at a loss. And I said, well, how do you get to the net? He said, well, I don't really ever get to the net. I can't. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. So I said, how would you get to the net? I mean, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so he did not have a great serve. He was probably rarely going to get to net, but he was not even thinking about how he would construct the point You see to get, you know, to get the occasional three quarter court ball where he could take control of the point and either end up at the net or hit a a winner on the way. Does that make sense? Yep. And in the process, the focus of my players was to create forced errors, not to avoid unforced errors or hit winners, but to create forced errors because it's sort of like the, the football team that grinds down the other team by running the ball over time you wear that player down. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then the enforced errors come from him and openings for winners open up. And this is what you see, the great competitors, and we have the two best competitors, three best competitors among all athletes in the sport, uh, athletes in the world in our sport, Mm. Djokovic, Federer, and Ball. Mm. I mean, they are, of all sports, I believe, Mm. they should be an example for young people playing any sport currently because their focus is Agassi was like this too. Their focus is not on winning. Their focus is on making you suffer Mm -hmm. and they're going to embrace any suffering you make them do. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, uh, and they're going to get better at that. This is what Nadal talks about all the time. Um, I'm going to make you suffer. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, respond when you make me suffer and I'm going to get better Mm
0: -hmm. and I'm going to take pride in that. And we'll, and glorious things will happen hmm. as a result. Does that make sense? For sure, yeah. So you you mentioned a question there to ask recruits, but can you tell us about behavioral interviewing and how coaches could use that more in the recruiting process?
1: Well, um, it goes along. This is where my assessment helps um, it, to go through, for the coach to go through it to understand what kind of questions to ask. I started asking. Tell me about um, behavior interviewing. Is basically Asking um, a question about past behavior to predict future behavior. And so I would ask questions like, Tell me about your past coaches. And, um, you know, uh, and coaches will totally identify with this. First of all, you're lucky if you're talking to the athlete without the parents there. <laughs> um, if you're that lucky, typically, um, well, if you're not that lucky, the dad will chime in. Well, he had a coach when he was eight and he screwed up his forehand, And so we switched this other coach, but then she verbally abused him. And then, you know, mm-hmm. as a young coach, I would think, Oh, well, I'm not like that. <laughs> and for sure, they loved me for like the first month.
0: Mm-hmm. But as
1: an older coach, I'm thinking this isn't going to work. I'm next.
0: Right.
1: So it would reveal, um, and I would always close with a, Uh, question slash statement uh, to try to close the deal. And I didn't have to start doing this until the millennials came, started coming on campus Um, because it was hard for me to find players, as you know, full well that had an edge. So I would ask them, um, tell me once again about your toughest match in junior tennis. Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, I was uh, seated. I beat this player seated a lot higher um, it was hundred degrees. I pulled through, I persevered. I won. I think you were there coach. And, and, and my reply is, yes, I was there. And it was very impressive. But I got to ask you a question. Are you prepared to come to Texas in August and compete like that every day in practice? Mm. And by asking that question, you put, you put the athlete in position to select for or select out because they instantly know what you're about.
0: Mm -hmm. you know
1: and you've told them you obviously you've told them how great you think they are and the promise they have and you show them campus they like their teammates but head coach to to athlete are you committed to getting better because we're going to go places that both of us can't imagine going but to do that that has to be the commitment
0: Mm -hmm.
1: does that make sense
0: yeah, so. no, it does, for for sure. And so just just lastly, Jeff, then I mean, we kind of touched upon this already, but um, I, I loved learning about about your early days uh, as a college coach and, uh, you know, making that transition from a player to coach. And, and like I alluded to earlier, it, it's maybe happening even even quicker now um, than, than before, but maybe not. But how would you encourage coaches that are trying to get into the industry they've just finished their 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 tenure as a student athlete how can they make that switch over to being a coach um a little more smoother or quicker or or does it need to be smooth and quick and it just needs to be messy and you know figure out things as they go any any advice you could give right
1: them? well I, I was lucky because i wasn't very good so i was a football <laughs> player took a chance late I just happened to have the best, one of the best coaches, certainly the best tennis coach Mm -hmm. that I've ever been around, um, Jim Burdick. And so I, what I did um, at the end of my senior years, I started studying him and I would take a notebook to practice. And he had, um, Dennis Vandermeer would bring his um, clinics there. And one time he brought, brought Margaret Court smith who he was mark court who he was coaching she was number one in the world he would give her a lesson on our court there so i was sitting there with my legal pad i would say to study the sport become a student of the game and i, I would visit coaches in um in 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 other sports as well mm-hmm. on campus and study what they do the way they run practice for instance um from basketball i learned that that in tennis we do drills way too long and basketball practices typically really move mm. because they, you, they don't, the drills do not go beyond the learning curve in tennis. We do it until we think, cause we want them to get it. The problem is they're not going to get it today. And the learning curve is flattened. It's time to move on. Mm. So there are things you can learn by going to other practices and talking, coaching with other coaches um, that I think are extremely valuable.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, Jeff, that's, that's great. There's, there's so many things in there and, and, I, and I've learned, even though I've read your book, I've, I've learned more, um, from you today and, and, uh, actually want to go back and do some coaching now. So you, you've inspired me to, <laughs> to make some changes, but, uh, but where, where can coaches find you now and what you're doing now? Um, can you, can you just tell us maybe about your website, what you're doing, where they can pick up your new book?
1: Yes, I've got, well, my website is moreleadership.com. Mm-hmm. My book is Strive Together, and the subtitle is is Achieve Beyond Expectations in a Results-Obsessed World, and you can find that on Amazon just by searching Strive Together, uh, Jeff Moore. Mm-hmm. And I'm still doing a combination of consulting with head coaches in a variety of sports, and I also do uh, workshops. And I, I want to say that what's been the most thrilling part of this for me is, um, what I've learned, mm. you know, when you're a coach, when you have a job, you talk with your peers on the recruiting trail or on the phone, but now I'm in their element. So I'm learning every day, which has been thrilling for me, not only with co- from coaches in sports that I did not coach, but from tennis coaches as well. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's been, it's been a blast. So, um, and I, and coaches, coaches typically hire me because, um, their administrator wants them to win, but their administrator also wants their athletes to have a positive experience. (laughs) Those two things don't reconcile. (laughs) So, um, they bring me in to help challenge the kids in a way that, um, invigorates them, Mm. that turns them on rather than, um, you know, the win at all cost approach. Mm-hmm. So, and typically I come in many times, I come in after a sports psychologist because a psychologist is, um, trained to co to treat illness, to treat mental illness, to, to uh, cope with adversity. And the problem that coaches tell me is that there isn't enough adversity in the first place because the kids will not move out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm so um so that's that's what i try to help coaches with and it's been a blast
0: great well well please keep doing it jeff and and keep putting out great material uh like you're doing because it's uh believe it's it's uh well needed in this day and age and and uh coaches will benefit greatly from it so thank you for all your time today and uh look forward to seeing you down the road thank
1: you for having me dave appreciate it
0: Thanks so much for checking out the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. I quickly want to thank Jacob Dye, the ITA's social media coordinator, for making this podcast a reality in 2019. The next podcast will be released on January 2nd, where I interview Arizona State head women's coach Sheila Mathamani. Hope you all have a lovely holiday season, and we'll see you in 2020.